0: 7. They come down to us. We are enabled to judge of the nature of the people from the expression we find in hewn stone and on painted walls. It is in primitive art generally that we see more clearly the direct emotional significance of line and form. Art appears to have developed from its most abstract position, to which bit by bit have been added the truths and graces of natural appearance, until as much of this naturalistic truth has been added as the abstract significance at the base of the expression could stand without loss of power. At this point, as has already been explained, a school is at the height of its development. The work after this usually shows an increased concern with naturalistic truth, which is always very popular, to the gradual exclusion of the backbone of abstract line and form significance that dominated the earlier work, and when these primitive conditions are lost touch with, a decadence sets in, at least, this is roughly the theory to which a study of the two great art developments of the past, in Greece and Italy would seem to point, and this theory is the excuse for all the attempts at primitivism of which we have lately seen so much, art having lost touch with its primitive base owing to the overdoses of naturalism it has had, we must, these new apostles say, find a new primitive base on which to build the new structure of art, the theory has its attractions, but there is this difference between the primitive archaic Greek or early Italian and the modern primitive, The early men reverently clothed the abstract idea they started with in the most natural and beautiful form within their knowledge, ever seeking to discover new truths and graces from nature to enrich their work, while the modern artist, with the art treasures of all periods of the world before him, can never be in the position of these simple-minded men. It is therefore unlikely that the future development of art will be online similar to that of the past. The same conditions of simple ignorance are never likely to occur again. Means of communication and prolific reproduction make it very unlikely that the art of the world will again be lost for a season, as was Greek art in the Middle Ages. Interesting intellectually as is the theory that the Impressionist point of view the accepting of the flat retina picture as a pattern of color sensations offers a new field from which to select material for a new basis of artistic expression. So far the evidence of results has not shown anything likely seriously to threaten the established principles of traditional design and anything more different in spirit from the genuine primitive than the irreverent anarchy and flouting of all refinement in the work of some of these new primitives. It would be difficult to imagine, but much of the work of the movement has undoubted artistic vitality, and in its insistence on design and selection should do much to kill realism and the copying nature theory of a few years back. Although it is perfectly true that the feelings and ideas that impel the artist may sooner or later find their own expression, There are a great many principles connected with the arranging of lines, tones, and colors in his picture that it is difficult to transgress without calamity. At any rate the knowledge of some of them will aid the artist in gaining experience, and possibly save him some needless stumbling. But don't for one moment think that anything in the nature of rules is going to take the place of the initial artistic impulse which must come from within. This is not a matter for teaching, art training being only concerned with perfecting the means of its expression. Illustration, play XXX. A study for a picture of Rosalind and Orlando Rose. He calls us back, my pride film with my fortunes. It is proposed to treat the subject from the material side of line and tone only. Without any reference to subject matter. With the idea of trying to find out something about the expressive qualities line and tone are capable of yielding and associated with visual things. While use can be made of any such knowledge to give expression to the emotional life of the artist is not our concern and is obviously a matter for the individual to decide for himself. There is at the basis of every picture a structure of lines and masses. They may not be very obvious, and may be hidden under the most broken of techniques, but they will always be found underlying the planning of any painting. Some may say that the lines are only the boundaries of the masses, and others that the masses are only the spaces between the lines, but whichever way you care to look at it, there are particular emotional qualities analogous to music that affect us in lines and line arrangements and also in tone or mass arrangements, and any power picture may have to move us will be largely due to the rhythmic significance of this original planning. These qualities, as has already been stated, affect us quite apart from any association they may have with natural things, arrangements of mere geometrical lines are sufficient to suggest them but of course other associations connected with the objects represented will largely augment the impression, when the line and tone arrangements and the sentiment of the object are in sympathy, and if they are not, it may happen that associations connected with the representation will cut in and obscure or entirely destroy this line and tone music, that is to say, if the line and tome arrangement in the abstract is expressive of the sublime, and the objects whose representation they support something ridiculous, say a doggy braiding, the associations aroused by so ridiculous an appearance will override those connected with the line and tone arrangement, but it is remarkable how seldom this occurs in nature, the sentiment of the line and tone arrangements things present being usually in harmony with the sentiment of the object itself. As a matter of fact, the line effect of a donkey in repose is much more sublime than when he is braying. There are two qualities that may be allowed to divide the consideration of the subject, two points of view from which the subject can be approached unity and variety, quality somewhat opposed to each other, as are harmony and contrast in the realm of color, unity is concerned with the relationship of all the parts to that oneness of conception that should control every detail of a work of art, all the more profound qualities, the deeper emotional notes, are on the side of the subject, on the other hand, variety holds the secrets of charm, vitality, and the picturesque, it is the dither, the play between the larger parts, that makes for life and character, without variety there can be no life, in any conception of a perfect unity, like the perfected life of the Buddhist, nirvana or nibbana literally, dying out, or extinction, as of an expiring fire, there is no room for variety, for the play of life, all such fretfulness ceases, to be replaced by an all pervading calm, beautiful, if you like, but lifeless, There is this deadness about any conception of perfection that will always make it an unattainable ideal in life. Those who, like the Indian Fakir or the hermits of the Middle Ages, have staked their all on this ideal of perfection, have found it necessary to suppress life in every way possible. The Fakirs often remaining motionless for long periods at a time, and one of the medieval saints going so far as to live on the top of a high column where life and movement were well nigh impossible, and in art it is the same. All those who had aimed at an absolute perfection had usually ended in a deadness. The Greeks knew better than many of their imitators this vital necessity in art. In their most ideal work there is always that variety that gives character and life. No formula or canon of proportions or other mechanical device for the attainment of perfection was allowed by this vital people entirely to subdue their love of life and variety. And however near they might go towards a perfect type in their ideal heads and figures, they never went so far as to kill the individual in the type. It is the lack of the subtle distinction that, I think, has been the cause of the failure of so much art founded on so-called Greek ideals. Much Roman sculpture, if you accept their portrait busts, illustrates this. Compared with Greek work it lacks that subtle variety in the modeling that gives vitality. The difference can be felt instinctively in the merest fragment of a broken figure. It is not difficult to tell Greek from Roman fragments. They pulsate with a life that it is impossible to describe but that one instinctively feels, and this vitality depends, I think it will be found, on the greater amount of life-giving variety in the surfaces of the modeling, in their architectural moldings, the difference of which we are speaking can be more easily traced, the vivacity and brilliancy of a Greek molding makes a Roman work look heavy and dull, and it will generally be found that the Romans used the curve of the circle in the sections of their moldings, a curve possessing the least amount of variety, as is explained later, where the Greeks used the lines of conic sections, curves possessed of the greatest amount of variety. But while unity must never exist without this life-giving variety, variety must always be under the moral control of unity, or it will get out of hand and become extravagant. In fact, the most perfect work, like the most perfect engine of which we spoke in a former chapter, has the least amount of variety as the engine has the least amount of dither, that is compatible with life. One does not hear so much talk in these days about a perfect type as was the fashion at one time, and certainly the pursuit of this ideal by a process of selecting the best features from many models and constructing a figure out of them as an ideal type, was productive of very dead and lifeless work. No account was taken of the variety from a common type necessary in the most perfect work. If life and individual interest are not to be lost, and the thing is not to become a dead abstraction, but the danger is rather the other way at the moment, artists revel in the oddest of individual forms, and the type idea is flouted on all hands, an anarchy of individualism is upon us, and the vitality of disordered variety is more fashionable than the calm beauty of an ordered unity, excessive variations from a common type is what I think we recognize as ugliness in the objective world, whereas beauty is on the side of unity and conformity to type, Beauty possesses both variety and unity, and is never extreme, erring rather on the side of unity. Burke in his essay on, the sublime and the beautiful, would seem to use the word beautiful where we should use the word pretty. Placing it at the opposite pole from the sublime. Whereas I think beauty always has some elements of the sublime in it, while the merely pretty has not. Mere prettiness is a little difficult to place. It does not come between either of our extremes, possessing little character or type. Variety or unity, it is perhaps charm without either of these strengthening associates, and in consequence is always feeble, and the favorite diet of weak artistic digestions. The sculpture of ancient Egypt is an instance of great unity in conception, and the suppression of variety to a point at which life scarcely exists. The lines of the Egyptian figures are simple and long, the surface is smooth and invaried, no action is allowed to give variety to the pose. The placing of one foot a little in front of the other being alone permitted in the standing figures, the arms, when not hanging straight down the sides, are flexed stiffly at the elbow at right angles, the heads stare straight before them. The expression of sublimity is complete. And this was, of course, what was aimed at. But how cold and terrible is the lack of that play and variety that alone show life. What a relief at Island at the British Museum to go into the Elgin marble room and be warmed by the noble life pulsating in the Greek work. After visiting the cold Egyptian rooms, in what we call a perfect face it is not so much the perfect regularity of shape and balance in the features that charms us, not the things that belong to an ideal type, but rather the subtle variations from this type that are individual to the particular head we are admiring. A perfect type of head, if such could exist, might excite our wonder, but would leave us cold but it can never exist in life, the slightest movement of the features, which must always accompany life and expression, will mar it, and the influence of these habitual movements on the form of the features themselves will invariably mold them into individual shapes away from the so-called perfect type, whatever may have been nature's intention in the first instance, if we call these variations from a common type in the features imperfections, as it is usual to do, it would seem to be the imperfections of perfection that charm and stir us, and that perfection without these so-called imperfections is a cold, dead abstraction, devoid of life, that unity without variety is lifeless and incapable of touching us. On the other hand, variety without unity to govern it is a riotous exuberance of life, lacking all power and restraint and wasting itself in a madness of excess, so that an art of balance has to be struck between these two opposing qualities. In good work unity is the dominating quality, all the variety being done in conformity to some large idea of the whole, which is never lost sight of, even in the smallest detail of the work. Good style in art has been defined as, variety in unity, and Hogarth's definition of composition as the art of, varying well, is similar, and I am not sure that, contrasts in harmony, would not be a suggestive definition of good color. Let us consider first variety and unity as they are related to a line drawing and afterwards to mass drawing. rhythm variety of line. Line rhythm or music depends on the shape of your lines, their relation to each other and their relation to the boundaries of your panel. In all good work this music of line is in harmony with the subject, the artistic intention of your picture or drawing. The two lines with the least variation are a perfectly straight line and a circle. A perfectly straight line has obviously no variety at all, while a circle, by curving at exactly the same ratio all along, has no variation of curvature, it is of all curves the one with the least possible variety. These two lines are, therefore, two of the dullest, and are seldom used in pictures except to enhance the beauty and variety of others, and even then, subtle variations. Some amount of play, is introduced to relieve their baldness, but used in this way, vertical and horizontal lines are of the utmost value in rectangular pictures uniting the composition to its bounding lines by their parallel relationship with them. And further, as a contrast to the richness and beauty of curves they are of great value, and are constantly used for this purpose. The group of moldings cutting against the head in a portrait, or the lines of a column used to accentuate the curved forms of a face or figure, are well-known instances, and the portrait painter is always on the lookout for an object in his background that will give him such straight lines. You may notice, too how the lines drawn across a study in order to copy it squaring it out as it is called improve the look of a drawing giving a greater beauty to the variety of the curves by contrast with the variety lacking in straight lines the perfect curve of the circle should always be avoided in the drawing of natural objects even a full moon and in vital drawings of any sort some variety should always be looked for neither should the modeling of the sphere ever occur in your work the dullest of all curved surfaces Although the curve of the perfect circle is dull from its lack of variety, it is not without beauty, and this is due to its perfect unity, it is of all curves the most perfect example of static unity, without the excitement of the slightest variation it goes on and on forever, this island no doubt, the reason why it was early chosen as a symbol of eternity, and certainly no more perfect symbol could be found, the circle seen in perspective assumes the more beautiful curve of the ellipse, a curve having much variety, But as its four quarters are alike, not so much as a symmetrical figure can have. Perhaps the most beautiful symmetrically curved figure of all is the so-called egg of the well-known molding from such a temple as the Irish theme, called the egg and dart molding. Here we have a perfect balance between variety and unity. The curvature is varied to an infinite degree. At no point is its curving at the same ratio as at any other point, perhaps the maximum amount of variety that can be got in a symmetrical figure. Preserving as it does, its almost perfect continuity, for it approaches the circle in the even flow of its curvature, the silent roughly, the line of the contour of a face, and you may note how much painters who have excelled in grace have insisted on it in their portraits, Gemsborough and Van Dyck are striking, instances, illustration, diagram VII, egg and dart molding from one of the caryatids from the ERECHTHEUM in the British Museum the line of a profile is often one of great beauty, Only here the variety is apt to overbalance the unity or run of the line. The most beautiful profiles are usually those in which variety is subordinated to the unity of the contour. I fancy the Greeks felt this when they did away with the hollow above the nose, making the line of the forehead run, with but little interruption, to the tip of the nose. The unity of line is increased, and the variety made more interesting. The idea that this was the common Greek type is, I should imagine, and true for their portrait statues do not show it. It does occur in nature at rare intervals, and in most Western nationalities, but I do not think there is much evidence of its ever having been a common type anywhere. Illustration, Diagram VIII Illustrating variety in symmetry Note how the hollows marked A are opposed by fullnesses marked B. in drawing or painting a profile This run or unity of the line is the thing to feel, if you would express its particular beauty. This is best done in the case of a painting by finally drawing it with the brush from the background side. After having painted all the variety there is of tone and color on the face side of the line. As the background usually varies little, the swing of the brush is not hampered on this side as it is on the other. I have seen students worried to distraction trying to paint the profile line from the face side. Fearing to lose the drawing by going over the edge, with the edge blurred out from the face side. It is easy to come with a brush full of the color the background is immediately against the face a different color usually from what it is further away. And draw it with some decision and conviction. Care being taken to note all the variations on the edge. Where the sharpnesses come and where the edge is more lost. And see. The contours of the limbs illustrate another form of line variety what may be called variety in symmetry. While roughly speaking the limbs are symmetrical. Each side not only has variety in itself but there is usually variety of opposition. Supposing there is a convex curve on the one side, you will often have a concave form on the other. Always look out for this in drawing limbs, and it will often improve a poorly drawn part if more of this variation on symmetry is discovered. The whole body, you may say, is symmetrical, but even here natural conditions make for variety. The body is seldom, except in soldiering, held in a symmetrical position. The slightest action produces the variety we are speaking about. The accompanying sketches will indicate what is meant. Illustration, Diagram Illustrating variety in symmetry. Note how the hollows marked A are opposed by the fullnesses marked. B. of course the student, if he has any natural ability, instinctively looks out for all these variations that give the play of life to his drawing. It is not for him in the full vigor of inspiration that books such as this are written. But there may come a time when things won't come and it is then that it is full to know where to look for possible weak spots in your work. A line of equal thickness is a very dead and inexpressive thing compared with one varied and stressed at certain points. If you observe any of the boundaries in nature we use a line to express, you will notice some points are accentuated, attract the attention, more than others. The only means you have to express this in a line drawing is by darkening and sharpening the line, at other points, where the contour is almost lost the line can be soft and blurred, it is impossible to write of the infinite qualities of variety that a fine draftsman will get into his line work, they must be studied first hand, but on this play of thickness and quality of line much of the vitality of your drawing will depend, xii rhythm, unity of line unity of line is a bigger quality than variety, and as it requires a larger mental grasp, is more rarely met with, the bigger things in drawing and design come under its consideration, including, as it does the relation of the parts to the whole, its proper consideration would take us into the whole field of composition, a subject needing far more consideration than it can be given in this book. In almost all compositions a rhythmic flow of lines can be traced, not necessarily a flow of actual lines although these often exist, they may be only imaginary lines linking up or massaying certain parts, and bringing them into conformity with the rhythmic conception of the whole, or again, only a certain stress and flow in the forms suggesting line movements, but these line movements flowing through your panel are of the utmost importance, they are like the melodies and subjects of a musical symphony, weaving through and linking up the whole composition. Often, the line of a contour at one part of a picture is picked up again by the contour of some object at another part of the composition, and although no actual line connects them, a unity is thus set up between them. See Diagrams, pages 166 and 168. Illustrating line compositions of pictures by Botticelli and Paolo Veronese, this imaginary following through of contours across spaces in a composition should always be looked out for and sought after, as nothing serves to unite a picture like this relationship of remote parts. The flow of these lines will depend on the nature of the subject, they will be more gracious and easy, or more vigorous and powerful, according to the demands of your subject. This linking up of the contours applies equally well to the drawing of a single figure or even a head or hand, and the student should always be on the lookout for this uniting quality. It is a quality of great importance in giving unity to a composition. When groups of lines in a picture occur parallel to each other they produce an accentuation of the particular quality the line may contain, a sort of sustained effect, like a sustained chord on an organ, the effect of which is much bigger than that of the same chord struck staccato. This sustained quality has a wonderful influence in steadying and uniting your work. This parallelism can only be used successfully with the simplest lines, such as a straight line or a simple curve. It is never advisable except in decorative patterns to be used with complicated shapes. Blake is very fond of the sustained effect parallelism gives, and uses the repetition of curved and straight lines very often in his compositions. Note in play I of the job series. Page 146 Transcriber's note play XXXI. The use made of this sustaining quality in the parallelism of the sheep's backs in the background and the parallel upward flow of the lines of the figures. In play II you see it used in the curved lines of the figures on either side of the throne above, and in the two angels with the scroll at the left hand corner. Behind these two figures you again have its use accentuating by repetition the peaceful line of the hacks of the sheep. The same thing can be seen in play XXXI. Beware the parallelism of the back lines of the sheep and the legs of the seated figures gives a look of peace contrasting with the violence of the messenger come to tell of the destruction of Job's sons. The emphasis that parallelism gives to the music of particular lines is well illustrated in Hall Blake's work. He is a mine of information on the subject of line rhythm. Compare with plate XXXI. See, note how the emotional quality is dependent in both cases on the parallelism of the upward flow of the lines how also in plate iv has carried the vertical feeling even into the sheep in the front, introducing little bands of vertical shading to carry through the vertical lines made by the kneeling figures, and in the last plate, so the Lord blessed the latter end of job more than the beginning, note how the greater completeness with which the parallelism has been carried out has given a much greater emphasis to the effect, expressing a greater exaltation and peace than in plate XXXI, a notice in plate XXXI, where the gist, Upright man is laughed to scorn. How this power of emphasis is used to increase the look of scorn hurled at job by the pointing fingers of his three friends. Of the use of this principle in curved forms. The repetition of the line of the back in stooping figures is a favorite device with Blake. There will be found instances of this in plate XXXII, ENG. Further instances will be found on reference to plates VII, VII, XII, and XVII, in Blake's job. In the last instance it is interesting to note how he has balanced the composition, which has three figures kneeling on the right and only one on the left. By losing the outline of the third figure on the right and getting a double line out of the single figure on the left by means of the outline of the mass of hair, and also by shading the single figure more strongly, he has contrived to keep a perfect balance. The head of job is also turned to the left, while he stands slightly on that side. Still further balancing the three figures on the right. This does not show so well in the illustration here reproduced as in the original print. Illustration, play XXXI. Thus did job continually. Play I Blake's job and I only am escaped alone do tell thee. Play I thee. Blake's job so the Lord blessed the latter end of job more than the beginning. Play XXI. Blake's job the just upright man is laughed to scorn. Play X Blake's job some rude things were said above about the straight line and the circle on account of their lack of variety, and it is true that a mathematically straight line, or a mathematically perfect circle, are never found in good artistic drawing, for without variety is no charm or life, but these lines possess other qualities, due to their maximum amount of unity, that give them great power in a composition, and where the expression of sublimity or any of the deeper and more profound sentiments are in evidence, they are often to be found, the rows of columns in a Greek temple the clusters of vertical lines in a Gothic cathedral interior, are instances of the sublimity and power they possess, the necessary play that makes for vitality the tither, as we call this quality in a former chapter is given in the case of the Greek temple by the subtle curving of the lines of columns and steps, and by the rich variety of the sculpture, and in the case of the Gothic cathedral by a rougher cutting of the stone blocks and the variety in the color of the stone, but generally speaking, In Gothic architecture, this particular quality of, dither, or the play of life in all the parts is conspicuous. The balance being on the side of variety rather than unity. The individual workman was given a large amount of freedom and allowed to exercise his personal fancy. The capitals of columns, the cusping of windows, and the ornaments were seldom repeated, but varied according to the taste of the craftsman. Very high finish was seldom attempted, the marks of the chisel often being left showing in the stonework. All this gave the warmth and exuberance of life to a fine Gothic building that makes a classical building look cold by comparison. The freedom with which new parts were built onto a Gothic building is another proof of the fact that it is not in the conception of the unity of the whole that their chief charm consists. On the other hand, a fine classic building is the result of one large conception to which every part has rigorously to conform. Any addition to this in after years is usually disastrous. A high finish is always attempted. No tool marks nor any individuality of the craftsman is allowed to mar the perfect symmetry of the whole. It may be colder, but how perfect in sublimity? The balance here is on the side of unity rather than variety. The strength and sublimity of Norman architecture is due to the use of circular curves in the arches. Combined with straight lines and the use of square forms in the ornaments lines possessed of least variety. All objects with which one associates the look of strength will be found to have straight lines in their composition. The look of strength in a strong man is due to the square lines of the contours. So different from the rounded forms of a fat man. And everyone knows the look of mental power a square for it gives to a head and the look of physical power expressed by a square jaw. The look of power in a rocky landscape or range of hills is due to the same cause. Illustration, play XXXII. When the Almighty was yet with me. When my children were about me. Play II. Blake's job with dreams upon my bed thou scarest me and a frightest me with visions. Play xi. Blake's job printed the wrong way up in order to show that the look of horror is not solely dependent on the things represented but belongs to the rhythm, the pattern of the composition, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Play xvii Blake's job when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Play eye, eye. Blake's job the horizontal and the vertical are two very important lines the horizontal being associated with calm and contemplation and the vertical with a feeling of elevation, as was said above. Their relation to the sides of the composition to which they are parallel in rectangular pictures is of great importance in uniting the subject to its bounding lines and giving it a well-knit look, conveying a feeling of great stability to a picture. How impressive and suggestive of contemplation is the long,